Take your Bible, if you will, and open it to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. My aim for this morning's message is to conclude the year drawing our attention to the life of faith, the life of faith in which we as believers are called to live. It was nearly three decades after our Lord's ascension, shortly after the city of Rome burned in AD 64, that the apostle Peter, with a shepherd's heart, wrote to a scattered church. It was a church that needed both comfort and encouragement, just like any church in present day. And Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1.8, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Peter saying to those that were scattered abroad, I know you did not see our Lord while he ministered among us. I know that even now you do not see him, but you believe in him, and that makes all the difference in the world. Your faith in the Lord makes all the difference in the world. And so Peter there in that one verse comforts his readers through gospel comfort. You believe in him. You, you love him, though you have not seen him. And my beloved, that is the life of faith. But you are not the only ones who did not see our Lord and yet still believe on him. Consider the life of Abraham for a moment. The author of Hebrews calls us to consider Abraham in this passage. Hebrews 11, 8 through 19, for example. We as believers are grateful for the believers from the past who lived this life of faith. Who lived this life of faith. They serve to us as, as motivation, as encouragement to press on in our faith. Praise God for the so great a cloud of witnesses that do surround us, as Hebrews 12.1 tells us. They are historic, spiritual examples for us. And they testify that the life of faith is really the only way to live. Believing in God, trusting in God. Now, just a few words to consider before we enter in in our passage, which begins in verse 13. But before then, it wasn't Abraham's plan to leave home. You know that, right? In fact, when he left Ur, he had no idea where he was going. Look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Not only did he not know where he was going, but it wasn't Abraham's plan to wait on the Lord and learn patience all the while. I don't know if many of us think about that, that we are indeed an impatient people. Now, how many years did Abraham live in a tent, for example? Look at verse 9. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. None of the patriarchs truly possessed the land as theirs. They did not build home for themselves, expecting to never move again. Tents are not what we might call the single-family homes people are in the market for. 
Abraham, as well as his son and grandson, all lived this life of faith. The land was in sight. It just simply wasn't in hand. The land was still only a promise. Let me ask you a question. Could you live on promises that would never be fulfilled in your lifetime? Abraham's life was that of waiting on the Lord. And this is perhaps one of the hardest things that we might face as believers, to wait on the Lord. That's right, waiting on him. That you're not in control, but he is. That you're waiting on the Lord to act, to do that which only he can do. And it's a reminder to us that we are impatient, are we not? It is a reminder to us that we are impatient, are we not? Yes, we are. Yes, that's right. Answer in the affirmative. Yes, we're all together on this. We are impatient people. Sometimes a mother prays 25 years before a daughter comes to faith. 25 years. I met such a woman on our trip. She's still so grateful to her mother for praying for her for those 25 years. Thankfully, she was able to see her daughter come to faith. Sometimes mothers pray and never get to see those prayers be answered in their lifetime. James reminds us in James 5, 7 through 8, Therefore be patient, it's a command there, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the soil, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Verse 8, another command, the same command, a reminder to us again, you too be patient. Be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What a great reminder to us all. Be patient, my beloved. Be patient about it. Wait upon the Lord for his coming, for all of it. Trust him. Be patient. Be patient. The question that you might have to ask yourself, is it worth the wait? And I believe the answer is the most definite. What? Yes. Yes, it's worth the wait. And what helped Abraham was to look ahead. Look at verse 10. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is whom? God. His ultimate promised land was heaven, just like it is for us. It is those who are heavenly minded that endure, that last through all that happens here on earth. Those who are heavenly minded have all the patience with all that happens here on earth. What of Abraham's wife, Sarah? Do you think it was her plan to be barren all those years? Look at verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she regarded him faithful who had promised. Do you think it was her plan to arrive beyond the proper time of life before having a child? Would it be your plan at 90 years of age? No, no takers. All right. Well, Sarah, like many of us, struggled to believe in God. 
That's right. She struggled to believe in God. She laughed out loud, Genesis 17, verse 17. She took matters in her own hands in Genesis 16, 1 through 4. She did things her way. Does that sound familiar to you? No, none of us, right? And boy, did it cost her and Abraham dearly. We never really stop to consider how much our impatience costs us, but it does. And yet, even with our impatience, the Lord never ceases to be merciful. His mercies are new each and every day. And God gave Abraham as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore, verse 12 tells us. So here, on the one side, you have God who is at work in you, Philippians 2.13. And on the other hand, you have man working out his salvation with fear and trembling, trusting in God. On the one side, God is sovereignly working out his will, his ways. And on the other hand, man is responsible to trust and obey, to obey just like what we heard this morning. Those two things at work, God at work, God fulfilling and doing his will, and man being responsible to trust and to obey. What a great reminder to us all that while we don't know how it's going to all work out, my beloved, we are called to trust in God. Never stop believing in him. For it is he who is able to do far abundantly beyond all that we ask or understand according to the power that works within us, Ephesians 3.20. Now, some of you might be asking, asking or saying to yourself, well, that is good and right, but what about now as we wait? What are we to do in the meantime? And that's a great question. So let's read Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been remembering that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return, but now they aspire to a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. So how do you arrive at the end of your days in faith, still believing? How do you die believing? Or turn it on its head, how do you live this life of faith. Again, I'm glad you asked those questions. Well, let's begin with welcoming his promises. Welcome his promises. Look at verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. The author of Hebrews writes, all these, who are they? They were the recipients of the promises of God, namely, namely Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. God gave Abraham the promise about the land and repeated it to his son Isaac and, and to Jacob as well. 
Yet not Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob ever possessed the promised land. In fact, it was almost 500 years after the death of Jacob that Israel first began to possess Canaan. 500 years, years later, they received the promise of innumerable offspring. Yet when they died, the patriarchs had only sons and grandsons. They all died without receiving the promises. But before you stop and think, well, that's a sad state to be in at the deathbed, on your deathbed, you cannot miss what the author of Hebrews writes here in verse 13. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, they never really missed out, you see. They all died in perfect hope and assurance of fulfillment. They died believing God would honor his word and eventually fulfill the promises that he had made. They died believing. Notice, they welcomed these promises. They welcomed these promises. This term in Greek, appears 59 times in the New Testament, and it means to embrace and receive gladly. It is to be happy about something, to look forward with happiness to what was going to happen. In a sense, what would you do in seeing a person whom you love and whom you have great affection for? Would you simply say, hey, would that be it, right? And I'm talking, you don't have to be Hispanic for this, by the way, okay? See, there you go. Thank you, Phil. No, a thousand times, no. You wouldn't just say, hey, or just a nod, you know? You wouldn't do that. No, you would embrace them. You would receive them gladly with great affection. And you don't have to be Hispanic for this. Your heart would be joyous to see them. In the same way, we are to receive and embrace and welcome God's promises, as did the patriarchs of old. You see, these men of old had eyes of faith. They saw God's goodness in fulfilling promises in his time. That's the beauty of getting older. We talk about all the aches and pains and not being able to sleep at night. Yeah, that's all there. But I'm talking about having lived a life believing in God and how that changes your perspective. That changes everything. Because you have times and times in which you've seen God at work and do that which only God can do. That's why a pastor can say, you know, he... He studied the scriptures and has believed on God, and he's, he's not driven and tossed by the wind as perhaps a young person might be. A tall redwood that's planted. The wind comes and just doesn't move him or phase him. I want to be like that when I get older. These men of old had eyes of faith. They saw God's goodness in fulfilling promises, his promises in his time. None of these men knew what was happening. No word was ever given to them as to when or how the promises would be fulfilled. 
But God's word was enough for them. God's word was enough. They believed on God, and it was enough for them to go on his word, just to trust him at his word. And here I must evaluate myself, and I ask myself, I wonder if for us, if his word is sufficient enough for us. Are his promises enough? Do you trust his promises? My beloved, it begins in the heart. Where the evaluation takes place, it begins in the heart. It begins in your attitude towards God's promises. Do you believe them to be true? Independent of your circumstances, do you possess eyes of faith? Eyes of faith. Look ahead at Moses, for example. Verse 27. By faith he left Egypt. Notice not fearing the rage of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Moses didn't succumb to fear. All of us would be tempted to fear. But in this circumstance, Moses did not succumb to fear. With full determination, the man endured, having eyes of faith, you see. Moses did talk to Yahweh in the burning bush, Exodus 3.2, where he saw the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Yet it was much more than the sight of a burning bush. Moses saw God at work, and this strengthened Moses. And so he could not give way to fear, but to trust in the Lord. He knew that no matter what happened, whatever he had to face, God would hold him and strengthen him every bit of the way. Every bit of the way. He had the same resolve as David did in Psalm 27, verse 1. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I, what? Fear. Yahweh is a strong defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? So if you're going to live this life of faith, enduring to the very end, still believing, you're going to have to welcome God's promises in your life keeping them at the forefront, remembering them, knowing them well. Welcome his promises. Not only that, but you're to acknowledge your pilgrimage. Acknowledge your pilgrimage. Look at verse 13 again. And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. To confess is to concede that something is factual or true. Here, you're just to admit that you are strangers and exiles on the earth. It can be translated as to admit, acknowledge, even confess and profess. This Greek term, homologeo in Greek, say the same thing about who you are on earth as God says who you are on earth. In fact, I want you to say it out loud. I am... A stranger stranger. and an exile on the earth. earth. That's good. I'm a stranger and an exile on the earth. Two words in Greek. The first one, you could translate it as stranger, yes, or better yet, foreigner. The second one, 
It pertains to staying for a while in a strange or foreign place, sojourning, residing temporarily. The idea here is that you're only passing through, not staying for a long time. You're a transient foreigner. This is a good reminder for us all. Jacob was the first one to confess himself as a pilgrim in the land. He says to Pharaoh, the first time he meets Pharaoh, he has this dialogue with him. Pharaoh said to Jacob, Genesis 47, verse 8, how many are the days of the years of your life? How old are you? Right? That's the question that Pharaoh asks Jacob. Jacob responds this way to Pharaoh. Very interesting way that he responds. He says to Pharaoh, Genesis 47, verse 9, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130. Interesting way to put it. Then he adds this commentary, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. That is Jacob's perspective at that moment in time about how he saw his life. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. Interesting way to answer how old you are. In fact, instead of asking how old you are, we could ask, how long have you been sojourning? How long have you been sojourning? That's less offensive to you, right? It's like something about it, you know. How long have you been sojourning? Any one of us can think about our sojourning, and we might be a bit saddened by the things that we have seen in our lifetime, the things that have transpired. Jacob recognized these as 130 years as few and evil. Well, this might be a little bit like Eeyore might respond to his life, but that's not where Jacob ended in his last days, which goes to show you of his faith. In his last days, his perspective changed. His perspective of his sojourning changed. It was no longer few and evil. The very next chapter, Genesis 48, verse 15, this is what Jacob says to Joseph, that intimate conversation between father and son. He blessed Joseph and had this to say to his son. May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, notice this, the God who has been my shepherd throughout my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys. And now my name live on in them. And the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. I believe this is where we're all to arrive. To say this about our great God. He has been my shepherd throughout my life to this day. God has been my shepherd. God has been my shepherd throughout my life to this day. Again, our eyes are to be fixed upon him, not on us. 
not on our circumstances, but on him. Now, every believer knows that this earthly scene is transitory. Every believer ought to not fool himself into thinking that this is really their home when it's not. The reality is there is nothing in this life that can compete with the satisfaction and joy that come from being at home. And my beloved, this is not our home. This is not our home. David declared in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have asked from Yahweh that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. Me, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to be, my beloved. I mean, do you realize that after all the trials that Job faced, this was his confession, Job 19, verses 25 and 26. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will rise up over the dust of this world, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall behold God. Every believer must acknowledge that they are only sojourners, they're only pilgrims, they're only strangers, they're only aliens on this earth. In fact, having this kind of a mindset is a game changer in the fight against the flesh. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says it this way, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. For we are not members of this world's society. Thus we shun the things of this world. We abstain from fleshly lusts. Not only that, we were not to be conformed to this world, Romans 12, verse 2. We must not pattern ourselves after the spirit of the age. We are to stop allowing ourselves to be fashioned after the present evil age in which we live. Being a pilgrim means that we're separate from the world. We're not to be conformed to it. We must abstain from its fleshly lusts. As Paul wrote in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in where? In heaven, from which we also, we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we welcome his promises. We acknowledge our pilgrimage. And thirdly, we desire God's heavenly country. Look at verse 16. But now they aspire to a better country, that is, a heavenly one. They aspire. It's an interesting term. It means to stretch oneself. The inclination is so intense that it requires the sacrifice of good things. Yeah, there's sacrifice involved by this intensity of this desire, of this aspiration. Every one of us have sought a better place to live. My mother had this aspiration in bringing my sister and I here to the States when she did. But she wasn't the only one. Ellis Island in New York has a museum that tells the story of the hundreds of thousands of immigrants who made the journey to America. I mean, what do you think drove Columbus to sail the open sea? Was it not the hope of finding a better country? And what of the pilgrims? 
The pilgrim fathers who were driven from their native land by persecution was not their hope to reach a fruitful land. Spurgeon actually says in Psalm 127, I love that. If you, had, if you didn't listen, to, you need to listen to Phil's message on Psalm 127. Back in the day, there was concern about overpopulation in the land. And so if Spurgeon even says, look, we weren't meant to just stay here on this little island either. There's a whole other land elsewhere too. If we have a problem with overpopulation, go after it. Go. It's interesting to mark that he even made in his days. To reach a, a country that was free and fruitful. But for the believer, there is a far better country for the Christian. Consider how Scripture makes it abundantly clear that heaven is a realm of unsurpassed joy, unfading glory, undiminished bliss, unlimited delights. I mean, nothing about heaven can be boring. There in heaven we will have unbroken fellowship with all of heaven's inhabitants. There won't be any sorrows, cares, tears, and fears, or even pain. Revelation 21 reminds us that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things passed away. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Or just consider how Christ prayed for you to spend eternity with him. In John chapter 17, before he faces the cross, this is the Lord's Prayer. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. I mean, if this is his desire, shouldn't it be ours as well to be with him? Our hearts should overflow with gratitude to God. For what awaits us, my beloved? Solomon put it in a perspective, in this perspective, when he wrote Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1 Better is a good name than good oil, and better is the day of one's death than the day of one's what? Birth. It's not simply about the meaningless and futility of this earthly life, but the beautiful reality that for the Christian, Death ushers us into glory. Where death is not the end. On earth, I get it. We put a lot of stock in the day we were born. Jeremiah is already asking about that. Jeremiah, January the 10th. He already has his birthday. He's moved on from Crypsis. Now he's zoned in on birthday. What he doesn't know, and what I need to remind him as a father, is that in heaven, we will put a lot of stock on the day we died. For that brought us to glory, to heaven, to be with God forever. Paul said it best in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is what? 
gain. Paul did well to point us upward and onward, for he was willing rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8. It wasn't that he was fed up with living, and so he wanted to die, but that death meant so much for the apostle. Because I finally get to see him. I finally get to be with him. Death was not the end, but only the beginning. To depart this life is to be with Christ, Philippians 1.23. To live as Christ and to die as gain. All of us need a, a heart like Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.4. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened. I get it. <laughs> You're not the only one. Because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. We must all yearn to be clothed with our heavenly form and to exchange this transient world for a far better country, a heavenly one. Now in scripture, there are many descriptions of heaven. And Ezekiel, for example, provides the most dramatic description of heaven in all of scripture. We, we don't have the time to describe it or to go into in great detail, but I want to give you this passage of Scripture for you to keep in mind. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 through 28. To read that on your own. There, Ezekiel is wonderfully transported to, to, to heaven in a, in a vision. It describes God's throne in heaven. There around the throne of the eternal, glorious God, he saw a flashing, sparkling rainbow of brilliance it really is difficult to interpret all the details there but just to know that heaven is a, is a real place and there is a majesty there's a beauty of heaven a perfection that is fit for God's heaven and again our Lord desires for you to be with him in heaven he prayed to that end on the night before he was to leave here leave earth, leave his earthly ministry. To his own disciples, he says in John 14, verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be, what? Also. This was Paul's great hope, too, as he writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. So we shall always be with the Lord. And God saved you with this in mind. Turn over to Ephesians, actually. Ephesians chapter 2. For you to see this for yourself. Ephesians chapter 2. You're familiar with this wonderful epistle. Paul wrote to those in and around Ephesus, but... In chapter 2, verses 5 and following, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, here's purpose, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace, unmerited favor for you and for me 
in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What will heaven be like? It's a place where the surpassing riches of God's grace will be shown ever so brightly for all eternity. And we who know Christ are going to this far better country for this express purpose so that God may showcase the infinite riches of his grace by which he will shower his goodness on us forever and ever. And just like Jazz sang this morning, and in the end, we'll just praising him all day long, forever, giving him the glory. It's nothing that we did brought us there. It wasn't our own doing. Even that faith that we placed on him was a gift. Gift from the Father. Going back to Hebrews 11. My beloved, God is not ashamed to be called your God. Did you catch that? God is not ashamed to be called your God. He has called you by name before the foundation of the earth. You are his, and you have the awesome privilege of bearing his name. You are his child. Cue up the keys for this dramatic ending. Must be a very important call. <laughs> it's your wife calling you. You better take that, you know. <laughs> My beloved, he has prepared a place for you. Stop and think about it, my beloved. Before this year ends, stop and think about it. Does not your heart leap for joy? God says in 1 Samuel 2, verse 30, For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be cursed. Either you honor God or you despise him. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all honored God. And God honored them. Nothing is so honoring to God as the life of faith, my beloved. Believing. Trusting him. Even as you read in Hebrews eleven six, and without faith it is impossible to do what? To please him. For he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Believing on God, trusting in him. This is what pleases him. This is what brings him honor and glory that he is who he says he is, and that he will do what he says he will do, and that you can trust him to the very end. And then when you are on your deathbed, you have a smile on your face because you know what awaits for those who have believed on Christ. To hear these words of our master recorded for us in Matthew 25, 21. Well done good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. My beloved, nothing is so honoring to God as a life of faith. Such a life of faith pleases him. It honors him. 
It brings him the glory that he deserves. That's how Abraham lived. And we too must live by faith. We too must live a life of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these reminders to us. Help us to welcome your promises, to remember them, to think on them deeply, to trust you for all of them. Remind us that this is not our home, that we're just here for a while. Sometimes it seems like it's a long time, but compared to eternity, it's not very much. Help us to have a perspective that this is not our home, and so we look upward and onward. We look unto you to think about things that are of your concern, of heaven, of being with you. Let it motivate us and encourage us to press on. Thank you for these heroes of faith like Abraham that encourage and motivate us to press on, to trust you for every bit of the way of this journey, of this pilgrimage. Help us to seek a far better country, a heavenly one. Thank you for bringing us through through 2023. We do not know all that will happen in 2024, but we are confident of this. He who began a good work will complete it, will bring it to perfection. You will take us home. You will conform us into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will put him on display. We will show this world by speaking the excellencies of him who has called us of darkness into his marvelous light, that you are indeed the Savior. You are our Lord, our Master. It is our desire to be pleasing in your sight, to do your will, do all that you have required of us, to trust and believe in you, and to see that in our obedience. All this because of Christ, in his name, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.